friends, welcome to the Angels and Awakening podcast. I'm your host, Julie Jancis, and I am so excited because today we are tapping into a new series where we are talking with healers. There is so much going on in the world right now, and it feels heavy. We are all feeling it. We are all experiencing it. And instead of keeping the attention on that heaviness, I want the attention to be more on how we engage within our spiritual practice. How do we go deeper within our own spiritual awakening? How do we look at our own interactions with the world in order to be able to change them and to do better? We are diving deep into the work that we all can do by speaking with a healer every Monday on the podcast. And the Thursday episode will still include an angel story at the beginning, but you can check the show notes because every Thursday we're going to include a healing as well. These are healers coming on to share their work, to give you a mini taste of what they do so that you can better understand different healing modalities, so that you can try different healings yourself, and so that you can lift the weight and the heaviness that we are feeling right now in 2020 so that you feel lighter. As we speak with Sensei Alex Kakyuko, What it's really about is not escaping by living in a high vibration 24-7, but as the Buddha did, living our lives and having a spiritual practice where we're able to dive into that spiritual practice, lighten our load, come into that light high vibration, and then return to the world to take action, to live our lives. And I'm so excited for you to listen to this interview with Sensei because it's one of the most favorite interviews that I have ever done. Um, The most eye-opening, the deepest ones that I think we've done yet. And I'm really excited for all the benefit that you're going to get from this episode as well. So stay on. We're doing a series here. We're going to dive into different methods of healing. Remember, you've got a healer every Monday coming on to talk about the work that we can be doing ourselves, diving deep within ourselves. And then Thursday, they're going to be sharing an angel story and a healing so that you can try different forms of healing and figure out for yourself which ones you want to incorporate into your spiritual practice. Spirit says, think of it like this. You have a team of angels on the other side and you have a spirit team on the other side of beings who love you and who are always watching out for you. But what spirit always wants for us is for us to build our own spirit team right here on earth. And my friends, I hope that you include this podcast. I hope you include me as part of your spirit team. But I can't be the only one. You should have a well-rounded spirit team of so many different healers and friends and people that live local to you that can help support you 24-7. You know, if, if one person can't, the other person can. And you have a big team so that there's always someone available to help support you on your journey. That's what this series is about, giving you new perspectives, giving you new ways of thinking about different healing modalities so that you can build your own spirit team here on earth to help you along your journey. Friends, if you want to help support this podcast, please book a one-on-one session. 
You can take my angel communication course in order to help connect with your angels, learn to feel, hear, see them more. You can also take my angel Reiki school where you'll learn how to uncover your own unique spiritual gifts and learn how to use them when working with clients. Friends, you don't have to have any experience in order to take these courses. You just have to feel it resonate within you and step forward in order to begin. If you want to support the podcast, you can do it in that way or just simply leave us five stars here on iTunes. Thank you so much. Now let's dive into the interview. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I'm so excited to be here with Sensei Alex Kakuyo. Alex, thank you so much for being here on the show. Thanks for having me. Yay. So, Alex, where are you in the U.S.? I'm in Ohio. You're in Ohio. So, Alex, I'm so excited for you to be here. And I shouldn't call you Alex because it's kind of like not calling a doctor doctor. You are sensei, correct? That's correct. Awesome. And so I want to dive in today because there's so much going on in the world. And I want this series that we're diving into with different healers to really be about not the heavy energy in the world, but how we break through to healing for the world. And perhaps we have to dive into some of that understanding of the heaviness of energy in order to get to that healing. That's really where I want to go with the conversation today. So there's so much happening in the world what do you see that humans need to be able to get to that place of awakening within them, to that place of healing within them? Well, I think more than anything, what's missing right now is people are lacking a place of spiritual refuge. So whether that's refuge in a traditional religious setting or if that's a spiritual practice that they do at home or some combination of the two, It used to be that we had a place separate from politics and work that we could go to if we were feeling scared or frustrated. And not having that anymore, a lot of people are going to politics to get a sense of self, or they're going to the entertainment industry for a sense of validation. And that's becoming very harmful because that's not what those institutions are for. So there are a lot of people who are on Facebook a lot, who are reading the news a lot right now, and they're absorbing within their energy everything that's happening and all of the opinions of everybody else. What is the first step for people right now who are turning to different places for that spiritual refuge to turn within? Like, What's the process look like to you? Well, the first step would be a teaching given by the Buddha called Dhamma Viraga, which uh, translates to the teaching of dispassion. And what that means essentially is that we look at the world, we look at our surroundings, we look at the karma or the consequences of our actions, and we really just kind of tear it apart mentally and see what's happening as the result. How do we feel when we do these things? How do the people around us feel? And when we see things that are causing harm either to ourselves or others, we practice viraga or dispassion, and then we withdraw from them. 
Now, many times when people hear this word dispassion, they think that means that uh, we as Buddhists should be robbed of pathos, that we should have no emotions, never feel good or bad towards anything. But that's not correct. Buddha felt anger in his life uh, when his monks, for example, didn't live up to their vows. He felt sadness at times, for example, when his homeland was invaded by a rival clan. But he learned to use his emotions skillfully. He, he felt his feelings well. And that's something that we should do. Uh, just really check in with ourselves. Well, this thing I'm doing, whether it's the news, whether it's the media, whether it's social, social media, Instagram, let's say, uh, what is it doing to me? And is this something I should continue with? I'm so glad that you brought that up because a lot of times people will equate spiritual teachings with, if it doesn't feel good, don't go there. And we can't be in that space because it leads to a space of bypass and inaction where if it doesn't feel good to fix my marriage, what do I do? Throw it away and start a new one. You know, do we do that with our children? And there's such big topics at hand right now within the entire world of creating space for people who have been oppressed for so long, creating space to help and take action for sex trafficking and all that is coming to light with that right now. How did the Buddha learn to take action and what Buddhist teachings are there on taking action while remaining? I don't know if it's in a high vibrational frequency or how do we take action and I guess not allow the negativity in the world to consume us as we're taking that action. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does. And, um, we have to remember that Buddhism is a very active practice. When we think of Buddhism, we often think of people meditating in a temple or bowing in front of an altar, and that's certainly part of the practice and of the tradition. But when Buddha realized enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, he didn't stay there for the rest of his life. He got up, he took action, he went to Deer Park, which was a place nearby where holy people congregated and, and he spread the teachings. And then even upon his death, 45 years later, he didn't tell his monastics to go into the monastery and hide. Rather, he said, go forth, good monks, and spread the Dharma, which is good and pure and true for the benefit of all sentient beings. So our practice then is not one of hiding from the world, rather it's one of engaging with it skillfully. So we do that first by, by working on ourselves, like I said, by looking at our interactions with the world, what happens as a result of our actions, which ones are healthy, which ones are not. And once we have that, that internal refuge where we've learned to be self-sustaining, to not depend on things that hurt us, things outside of ourselves, then we take that spiritual strength we've accumulated and we use that to go back out into the world. Only now we're not doing that from a place of fear or from a place of anger because we're not concerned of people thinking certain things of us or taking things away from us because we know we can live without them. But at the same time, 
we don't push them away either. This is the middle way that Buddha instructed us to follow, where we don't hold on to things, but we don't eject them from our lives either. So give an example of kind of maybe what that looks like in your daily life, because I consider you to be a healer. And I believe that spirit, God, universe, source walks us through different experiences ourselves so that we can really understand what it's like to be on the other side of those experiences and find healing and find what we need from them in order to teach everybody how to get there. So are there any experiences that you've had in your personal life where you use this practice? Sure, sure. So uh, there's one technique I like to teach students. It's called uh, meditative breathing. Uh, This is a technique that's been used by yogis and Buddhist masters for thousands of years to drop into very deep states of meditative concentration, uh, known as samadhi. And it's very simple. Uh, You breathe in and out through the nose, not the mouth. I'll, I'll walk you through it, then I'll explain how it works. And then on every inhale, you extend the belly button. Uh, Like you have a belly full of food and then on exhale, you just exhale like normal. And the way this works is there's two parts. So the breathing in and out through the nose engages our parasympathetic nervous system, which sends signals to our body that we're safe, that we're calm, that we can relax. Now, the opposite of that is when we breathe in and out through our mouth, which engages the sympathetic nervous system, which is kind of the, uh, the go response. So if you think about it, when you exercise, you breathe quickly, you breathe through your mouth. You don't even think about it. That's your brain telling your body, we have to go do something. And what happens is that that response, that fight, flight, or freeze response has been so hijacked in our culture that we do it all the time. So it's fine when we have that response and then we run or we fight off a wild animal, but If we're sitting in a conference room or in our car or in front of our laptop, we internalize all of that stress and we carry it with us. And then that clouds our mind and then we can't see what's going on in the world. So we can't react skillfully. So this meditative breathing kind of takes us back to that restful state. So breathing in and out through the nose. And then the reason we extend the belly button on every ex or inhale rather is because that moves our abdominal wall. And allows our diaphragm to drop into our stomach cavity. So we get a nice big lung full of air, which again sends signals to the body that we're safe, that we're calm, that we can relax. And this is something obviously we do it when we're meditating on the cushion. That's why Buddhist teachers like myself often instruct students to focus on the breath. But we can also do it in the grocery store, in the car, at work. And what this does, and the way I use this, is if I'm in a situation where I'm feeling stressed, where I'm feeling unsettled, this brings me back to center. And now, because my mind isn't clouded by these, by fear, by anger, things of that nature, now I can move skillfully in the world again. And I'm withdrawing from the world in that I'm not looking to other people to make me calm. But at the same time, I'm still right there in it. I'm just there from a state of rest and relaxation as opposed to being there from a state of fear 
So then it's from that place of really tapping in and going inward that we can see what action needs to be taken in any situation and take Mm -hmm. action from that deepened state of our true authentic selves instead of reaction. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Now, I should have mentioned this at the beginning. You are an author, just came out with a book that's called Perfectly Ordinary Buddhist Teachings for Everyday Life. Is this something that you talk about in the book too? Yes, absolutely. So the way the book came about, well, uh, it's kind of a long story, but I'll give you the short version, is that I wanted to teach people how to integrate traditional Buddhist practices with their everyday life. Uh, This is something that I actually had to learn myself. When I first started practicing Buddhism, I received great benefit from it, and it was wonderful. But I began to feel that I could not practice Buddhism and have a normal life at the same time. Because I would go on these three-day, week-long retreats, and I'd feel very good afterwards, very clear-headed, very calm. And that would last about a half a day. And then I'd go back into work and people are screaming at me on the conference call or I'm competing with people for a promotion. And there was a real tension there. And what I've learned since then is that we in the West think that if there's a tension, it means something's wrong. But life is tension. There's always a tension there. And the difference between what we do in the West and what Buddha taught is that in Buddhism, we see tension as an opportunity for growth. And we lean into that tension and we use it to move us along the spiritual path, which is something I discussed in the book. So the way this looked for me is I gave away all of my possessions and I went on an eight-month retreat where I was meditating four to six hours a day. I was also living and working on organic farms. So I built tiny houses in Indiana. I worked in an orchard in upstate New York. And I take all of those experiences, getting stuck in traffic jam, working on a waste oil furnace, uh, planting crops and not having the road be straight. And I integrate that with Buddhism to show, okay, this is the theological Buddhist approach. This is what it means when Buddha says life is suffering. And this is how it helps me in this regular everyday situation. And that's really the goal of the book, Buddhist Teachings for Everyday Life, is to show the praxis or the practical applications of what the Buddha taught. So I totally hear you on that. And I think it's amazing to be able to take that path when we haven't already committed to life responsibilities that hold us into the place of being wife, of being mother, because there are so many I feel like the majority of people who listen to the podcast are women, right? In their middle years. And it's hard because one of my teachers at the very beginning when I was getting into this said, you know what, to really do this work, you have to step away from your family and you have to kind of live in the mountains or kind of be reclusive in some way and separate yourself from all of the distractions of life, really, in order to hold this high vibration. And I really went deep into that in meditation myself and connected with spirit on that. And they said, no, you know, you can't leave your family. You can't leave your kids. 
just to start this life, what we're trying to bring through to humanity right now is, okay, where are you at? And how do you bring in this high vibrational frequency, which is what I call when I get into a meditative state, because it feels like I don't feel the sensations of my physical body as much as I feel my consciousness really outside in my auric field much more. And we can go into that next, but I want to stay focused on this because so many of my clients come to me and they say, Julie, I would just love, you know, six months to, to not have a family and to be able to live in this energy all the time. Sure. Speak to that, you know, like how, how do we come into this when we have lives that keep us busy from the time that we wake up to the time that we go to bed? Because a woman who has three small children and a job, it's hard for her. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, and, and it's interesting you said that because I do think that's sort of a, a rite of passage of people who who practice Buddhism, especially some of my other friends who have been in ministry. We, we all did some version of what I did, whether that was going to India for three years or going to live on a farm or moving into a monastery we all did essentially what your clients are saying they want to do is i would love to have six months a year two years of just living in this energy and i'm reminded of something i heard a christian minister say uh, when he was speaking about the story of in the book of genesis of the garden of eden and adam and eve being cast out and he said no one is meant to stay in eden forever Meaning that this, this, this place of restfulness that we all love so much is great. But what I and all my friends realized is that we can't just sit there forever. The Buddha did not sit there forever. Like I said, he got up from the Bodhi tree and went back into the world once he learned what he needed to learn. And then he instructed his monks to do the same. And my experience, and this is what really led to me writing the book, was that I'd gone out on this retreat with the thought that I would escape my suffering, that I would leave the corporate world behind, that I would leave the apartment and the car and all of that, and I'd have this deep spiritual love and light experience. And, and it, was, it was wonderful. I learned so much. But what I also learned is that suffering is everywhere. And that if I, I want to overcome my suffering, it's not a case of where am I or even what I'm doing. It's what's the state of my mind. So there was suffering in corporate America where I was dealing with the conference calls and the clients and the unruly coworkers. And there was suffering on the farm as well, where it's my day off, but a chicken escaped from the pen. So now we have to go find it. It's 95 degrees out, and I'm crawling around in the dirt, pulling weeds, getting bitten by horse flies. So the suffering changed, but it didn't go away. And Buddha tells us this in the first noble truth of Buddhism, life is suffering. And the reason he tells us that, it sounds very pessimistic, but when we dive into that teaching, it's actually very freeing and very optimistic because Part of the reason we struggle so much in the West is we think we shouldn't suffer. We think everything should be wonderful and peaceful and calm. And if it's not, we must be doing something wrong. And then what happens then is we take all of the joy in our life for granted. 
and we only see the negativity. But if we flip that paradigm and we approach life from a situation of life is suffering, okay, well, now all the suffering is normal. Now what stands out is the joy and the happiness. And it's so funny when I talk to students about that and I tell them life is suffering and they say, no, it's not. I have a wonderful family or I like my work or, you know, I started this fitness regimen and it's so great. I was like, good, you're, you're understanding, you're getting it. Life is suffering, but look at all the ways you're not suffering, right? So if we approach life from that way, life is suffering, then we see all the ways we're not suffering. And now our life becomes joyful. Now it becomes happy. So from my own experience, having worked on a farm, it's 95 degrees out where I am right now. I've been out in that weather. I've been working on a farm, crawling in the dirt. So having experienced that suffering, now I can appreciate the fact that I'm in an apartment with air conditioning. And I know how wonderful that is because I've lived without it. Okay? So when we have a lot of times people think that if we're practicing spirituality, just to make it all around, that if we're not in the mountains or in a cave or in a monastery, we're doing it incorrectly. And with this book, Perfectly Ordinary Buddhist Teachings for Everyday Life, I really wanted to disavow people of that notion. Uh, there are times where we need to withdraw temporarily but we withdraw so that we can learn something and then go back into the world with what we learned. Uh, Buddha called himself Tathagata, which is a Pali and a Sanskrit word, which means he who has come and he who has gone away. So he was in a constant state of coming and going all the time, withdrawing from the world, meditating, and then going back into it. And that's the purpose of our spiritual practice. It's not meant to be an escape. It's not meant to be a... I'm going to sit in these lovey-dovey feelings for the rest of my life and never feel anything ever again that's unpleasant. It's, I feel something unpleasant. Let me withdraw temporarily, learn what I need to learn, and then approach this problem with a new perspective. So with that lens, everything that we're going through right now is a huge catalyst for mm -hmm. people to be able to awaken and learn how to deepen their spiritual practice, not in order to escape and to be in that high vibrational feeling 24-7, but in order to have a spiritual practice and then come back to the world, have that spiritual practice come back to the world. So I connect with spirit. I know we've talked just briefly, you know, before we hopped on this call. And I know that the point of meditation in Buddhism is to kick the thoughts out of the mind, right? But what I teach my students is that there's a difference between the egoic mind thoughts, that's just a constant stream of thinking all day long, and your heart-centered voice, your intuition, which doesn't work the same way. It's only that thought is there when thought is needed, and then there's silence still in this space, and then when thought is needed, it's there. And I often connect with my angels or spirit when I'm in a deep meditation. And I'm wondering if you do as well. And if when you're deep in that space, if they show you anything about what's happening right now and what it's leading to. Sure. Sure. So th there are two things there. First, so there's a common misconception uh, when we talk about Buddhist meditation that the goal is 
to eliminate thoughts from our mind. And I, I understand why people think that because uh, Buddhist masters have talked about the mind body dropping away and things of that nature. But the way they did that, the way they had that experience was not through kicking thoughts out of their heads or, you know, I'm going to wrestle my mind into not thinking. Rather, it was not putting fuel on the fire of their thoughts, right? So if you imagine there's a campfire in front of you, if you're constantly throwing wood on that fire, it's never going to go out, right? But at the same time, if you try to, you know, put the fire out with your hands, you're going to burn yourself. So what do we do? We let the fire burn, but we don't put any more fuel on it. And it slowly dies down of its own volition. So in Buddhist meditation, using that meditative breath, which I discussed earlier, what we do is we simply let the fire burn, but we consciously move to not put more fuel on the fire of our thoughts. So we have a thought that comes into our head, and maybe we have that fight, flight, or fear response. Our heart rate goes up, we start to sweat, our muscles tense. But instead of going down the pathway of that thought, we return our focus back to our breath, right? So we have the thought, it's there, that's fine, we notice it. Our minds are meant to create thoughts, but then we return to the breath. We don't put more fuel on that thought. And this is a lifetime practice. We do this 10,000 times, but what happens is we reimagine that habit energy. So instead of my coworker was mean to me and we go on a 30 minute rant in our head of why they don't deserve to be there, we go back to our thoughts. And now that thought my coworker is mean to me, maybe at first it creates a level 10 response, then it goes down to a seven, then a four, and then a three until we eventually, we, we barely notice it. And it's not that the thought has gone away, it's that our relationship to the thought has changed. So, so there's that, but when you were speaking about you know, celestial entities and things of that nature, we do have a cosmology in Buddhism. Uh, so part of my training has been in the Pure Land Buddhist tradition. And there we have Amida Buddha, who's the Buddha of infinite light. And the story of Amida Buddha is he was a monk, Dharmakara, who practiced over countless eons and eventually realized enlightenment. However, in his compassion, instead of going into uh, Pari Nirvana or Final Nirvana, uh, he chose to remain in the world and create a pure land here where we could practice as well. So he states anyone who recites his name 10 times, Namu Amida Butsu, I take refuge in Amida Buddha, will enter into his pure land. And then they'll have the perfect situation where they can practice, right? Now, what my teacher taught me, however, was that this pure land of Amida Buddha is not a celestial place that we go to after death. Rather, it's the teaching of Reverend Koyokubose is that this is a place we go to here on earth. It's, it's a mind state that we're able to maintain. And we're able to see the Buddhist pure land around us as we purify our mind. So we're already here in the pure land, but it's through faith in Amida, through the purification of our mind, that we're able to see the purity of the world. So uh, there's a text, the Meditation Sutra, which discusses this in detail, actually, where there was a woman. As the story goes, she was betrayed by her son. She was a monarch, and she was thrown in prison. So she called out to Buddha for guidance and for help. So he came to her from, uh, from heaven, but what's interesting is instead of 
absconding her away from her prison is he taught her this meditative practice given in the Meditation Sutra so that she could see the Buddhist Pure Land where she was in prison. So what he was doing, instead of teaching her to escape the world through practice, what we talked about earlier, he was helping her practice and see the beauty of life in what was admittedly a very terrible situation, right? And this is something that I've experienced in my own life. And I can always gauge the uh, state of my mind by looking out the window, right? If I look at the trees and they're just trees and I look at the clouds and they're just clouds, okay, I have some work to do. But if I look at the trees and I see the light coming through the leaves and they look like jewels to me, if I see the clouds and they're majestic giants walking across the sky, then okay, my mind is pure and it's peaceful in this moment. So this practice of taking refuge in Amida Buddha is what allows me to do that in part because in life, there are situations where we just can't carry that burden ourselves. Uh, we're just not in a place where our spiritual container, let's say, is full enough. So this practice of chanting Nambutsu, Namu Amida Butsu, allows us to give our burden to someone else. That's the great kindness of Amida, is that if I can't carry something, I can give it to him to carry instead. Now, this is a beautiful practice, but it's also a difficult practice because it requires humility on our part. It requires us to be willing to say, I'm not enough in this moment and be okay with that. And, and be okay with that. I, I don't have to have all the answers, but he does. So here you go. And we do that through chanting. We do that through prostration, starting from a standing position and then ending with our head, foreheads on the floor. And through that act of humility, through that act of prostrations, we're able to connect with this higher power. And then we're able to allow them to carry our suffering for us when it's too much for us to carry ourselves. So I'm wondering... How does this relate to a lot of people within the realm that I've been talking in the space that I've been talking with about Black Lives Matter? Uh, because I'm not speaking to that point. I'm just kind of asking for uh, people to come on and share their voices on the podcast. I'm wondering, though, we've heard a lot about spiritual bypass, and I want to be respectful of that. How do we not bypass? other people's feelings? How do we not spiritually bypass people of color and say, I don't know, you know what I'm talking about? Sure, sure, absolutely. So spiritual bypass is definitely a problem, I think, in all spiritual communities. And I'll be frank, Buddhism is no exception. We have that as well. And spiritual bypass is really just us using our spirituality as an excuse to not deal with things that are difficult, be that racism, be that police brutality, be that sexism, homophobia. There is a real danger of us using the practice to perpetuate those systems. So, for example, in Buddhism, we're taught the teaching of non-self. And what this essentially means is that we exist as an individual entity but we also exist as part of a much larger whole as well. And part of the practice is learning to let go of that sense of self and focus more on this interconnection we have with all beings. 
which is a beautiful, wonderful, important practice, but it does get misused where people think, well, race is an illusion. Sex is an illusion. Sexual preference is an illusion. So if you're, if you feel like you're being oppressed because of your race, because of your gender, because of your sexual preference, then, you know, you just need to understand that this is all an illusion and step away from it. And, you know, none of this matters. And that's not, you know, I've spent a lot of time studying the sutras and I don't find that anywhere. Quite the opposite. In fact, Buddha was very, very involved with the world. He did that from a place of spiritual settledness. He did that from a place of being able to take refuge within himself and not within the political and socioeconomic systems of the world. But he didn't withdraw from them completely. Right? And when we talk about a situation like Black Lives Matters, what oftentimes happens is because we want to stay in that love and light and everything's fun and comfortable space. And when we get to that difficult conversation about race, about police brutality, then it essentially becomes, well, we just don't talk about that here. Well, that's just not part of the practice. And I address that in my book, Perfectly Ordinary Buddhist Teachings for Everyday Life, by simply reminding people that everyday life is our spiritual practice. Okay? You can't talk to me about samadhi. You can't talk to me about enlightenment if you're not also willing to talk to me about race. If you can't have that conversation, then clearly there's some work you haven't done yet. Right? Because, again, if we look at Buddha and the work he did, the anti-racism work he did, so they had something called the caste system in India, and they still have it today where you're born into a specific caste, you could be a Brahmin, you could be a warrior, a merchant, a Dalit. And based on that caste, where you were in that caste system, if you were a Dalit, uh, people wouldn't look at you, they wouldn't touch you, you could only hold very uh, menial jobs in society. And Buddha saw that, and he had the opportunity, being a noble, to just return to his palace. He had the opportunity to exclude these peoples from the Sangha, it would have made his life a lot easier, but he did not do that. He spoke out very strongly against the caste system. He allowed the people at the bottom of that system to join his Sangha. And he spends a lot of time in the sutras speaking with Brahmin who think he shouldn't do that, who they themselves were practicing spiritual bypass, saying, well, these people just have negative karma. If they practice well in their next life, they'll have better karma, but we should just leave them alone for now. Buddha said no to that. Buddha would have no problem saying black lives matters in the same way he had no problem saying Dalit lives matter. So as spiritual people, if we truly want to practice spirituality, then this can't be an escape valve for us. This has to be a worldview we use to see see the uh, inconsistencies of the world and then work to make them better in any way that we're able to. And like you said before, that starts with us and looking at our own interactions with the world, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. It it, it always starts with us. Both the hard work starts with us and, and the good stuff starts with us as well. So we are practicing wisdom and compassion. When we practice metta, meditation, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be safe, I love you. 
we start first with ourselves because we can't love the world until we love ourselves. But we don't stop with ourselves. We then extend that out to the world. And then also with wisdom practices, when we look for areas of the three poisons of greed, of anger, and ignorance, we start first with ourselves and we work to root that out within ourselves. But then once we do that again, well, where is greed, anger, and ignorance in the world? And what can I do to alleviate that as well? So again, we go back to that healthy cycle I referenced before. So what you talked about before too is that life is suffering. And I'm wondering if the root of all that suffering is our attachments to the way we feel and allowing those feelings to direct everything about our lives. Mm -hmm. What is the root of all suffering? Well, from the Buddhist perspective, going back to the uh, what's something called the 12-fold chain of causation, where Buddha laid out 12 steps from the beginning to the end, you know, where does suffering come from? And then how do we alleviate it? The first step is ignorance, meaning we do not understand our place in the world. And that's where our suffering comes from. So going back to that word, Tathagata, it means he who has come and he who has gone away. Now, Buddha used that to describe himself. But in the Lotus Sutra, where he gives his final teaching, he also uses that to explain and discuss the universe as a whole. So we have Buddha, the man who is Tathagata, and we have Buddha, the universe, which is also Tathagata. So what he is saying, and he discusses this later in the sutra in something called the Trikaya teaching, is that Everything is Buddha. So there is a oneness there, right? Uh, kind of like a wave on the ocean. We have the wave, we have the ocean, they're separate. But at the same time, if we look closely, there's just the ocean, right? So we as individuals, we exist, we have our daily lives, and we need to honor and respect that. Again, daily life is our spiritual practice. But there's also a deeper spiritual well where all of this comes from, right? And the mistake we make in our ignorance is we think there's a separation there. This is the mistake I made of thinking my daily life is over here and my spiritual life is over there and they're separate and I need to choose between them. And that's, that's the mind of ignorance, right? Which is fine. Like I said, that's a rite of passage. We all go through that. But eventually what we have to do is we have to interconnect those things and understand that, yes, bowing in front of my altar and meditating is spiritual practice. That's what creates the worldview for me to move through the world skillfully. But washing the dishes and picking up the kids, that's also spiritual practice. And I need to bow to the Buddha on my altar with the same reverence and respect that I bow to the Buddha within my spouse or within my children, or within my coworkers, because they're all one and the same. And then going back to what I discussed earlier about seeing the pure land through the power of Amida Buddha in everyday life, he, he acts sort of like a filter for our minds, right? I can't see the pure land, show it to me. And then what he does is he pulls us away a little bit, and then he directs us back. And now the trees, again, have seven, seven types of jewels. Now the clouds are devas marching across the sky. But the clouds have always been clouds, and the trees have always been trees. 
The only thing that changed is our mind. So the practice of alleviating ourselves of ignorance is the practice of working with and training our minds to leave that, that state of ignorance. I always, when speaking with students, I compare it to washing a window. If there is a beautiful sunny day outside, the, the sun is always there. But if the window is dirty, we can't see it. But windows get dirty. That's what they do, right? So we don't get mad at the window for adding dust on it. That's what windows do. We don't get mad at the sun for being outside. We just understand what's happening. We alleviate our ignorance. We see, okay, the window, my mind is dirty, and we clean it. And now I can see the sun again. And that's our spiritual practice. That's why it's so important to do this daily. That's why we do it for our entire lives. Uh, because we are constantly cleaning that window of our mind. And then that's what allows us to see the beauty and the spirituality and love in our daily existence. So I want to take this deeper and excuse me, because I'm trying to like formulate my thoughts as I go and try and process everything. What's coming up for me is I've heard before people say that in the culture in the East, it's much more easy for people to say two opposing things can be true at the same time. Sure. And we don't do that here in the West. And, and I'm taking this back a bit to the spiritual bypass of just that. I know for me as a healer, there are things that I have to work through in my own life in order to be able to show other people the way, right? And so it, I believe that it happens for a reason and a purpose. But I've heard so many people say, but I wouldn't have chosen this life for myself. And don't tell me that the other side, you know, made me come into this place and, and choose this suffering that I went through. And I want to honor and I want to respect that. But can two opposing things be truth at the same time where teachers are brought through different situations in order to learn how to lead and to teach others how to come to a place of healing. And at the same time, some people didn't choose the suffering that they're in, mm -hmm. that they're here going through it so that we can see their lives for what it is and choose to help and choose to step in and choose to take action create a world where everybody truly is equal and one. Does that make sense? Sure, sure. So there, there are a couple things there. First, what we need to understand is that, so I'll take this back to an experience I had when I was farming, because farming is wonderful spiritual practice, but it's also very difficult work. And, and I talk about that in my book, uh, Perfectly Ordinary, Buddhist Teachings for Everyday Life, where when I was in New York, we had chickens. And I was a low, low man on the totem pole. I was the apprentice, which meant I had to clean the chicken coop, which is a terrible, terrible job. Because their weight, so you have the coop and you have straw at the bottom, and they do their business in the straw. And then there's ammonia and bad smells that come up. So my job, once a week, I would go in, I'd take all the straw with a pitchfork, put it into a, uh, a wheelbarrow, take it to our compost pile, dump it, wet it down, turn it over. And what happens is over the course of three to four months, if you do this correctly, 
all of that chicken manure and grass clippings, whatever else you have in the compost pile becomes soil. And then we take that soil and we grow fruit trees with it. So all of the jam you enjoy, all the blueberry, whatever that you like to eat, it comes from chicken poop or cow poop or horse poop or something, right? And the problem we have is we want the fruit, but we don't want to deal with the manure. But, but you can't have one without the other. Okay, if there's not someone taking that crap, hauling it across the farm, putting it in the compost pile, nothing grows. Okay. And our job as spiritual teachers, I feel, is to do that work. So we work with our own suffering first. We grow fruit trees. And now once we've learned how to do this, once now that we can talk from our own experience, now we show other people how to do the same. And a big part of it in my practice, going back to the first noble truth, going back to life is suffering, is just helping people to understand that you have to deal with the manure. Because one, you can't get away from it. I tried. It's not possible. <laughs> and, and not just me. Buddha tried as well. Yeah. He was a hedonist early in his life, engaging in every sensual pleasure you can imagine. Then he was an ascetic. He almost starved to death and died. And then he found this middle way of, I can't escape the manure. So how do I use this to grow fruit trees? So, so <laughs> we're in the manure of 2020. <laughs> we're in the manure of 2020. Absolutely. <laughs> we will have wonderful blueberries and cherries and strawberries as a result. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, sensei, when your email came in, I probably get sometimes 25 to 50 emails a week of different people who want to be on the show. And I sit with all of them and I tap into the energetic frequency because for me, what, when I get into uh, alignment to high vibrational frequency, like we were talking about before, I don't feel the vibration in my physical body. I feel it outside in my auric field, specifically a lot right above my head. And I was in complete alignment. Even when I was reading your email, that it was just, you hold such a high vibrational frequency. And I'm just so glad that you reached out because you're uh, amazing. And I feel like just this conversation alone is going to bring so many people who are listening, healing. And I want everybody listening to know that Sensei Alex Kakuyo has generously allowed us to use one of his meditations for the Thursday episode and we'll share a little angel story and some information and and then that healing meditation uh Thursday but I'm just so grateful for your book for your work in this world for your soul being in this world because you are such an amazing healer. And I really, I want to continue this conversation, but I really want people to know where they can find your book. We're going to put it in the show notes, but will you let them know where they can find more of you and your book? Sure, sure. So I post articles on Buddhism at my blog, The Same Old Zen. And the URL is just like it sounds, thesameoldzen.com. And there I speak about Buddhist practice uh, from daily life. Uh, the general tone is this is what's happening in the world. 
And this is a Buddhist practice that can help us deal with it. So I speak about the pandemic. I speak about the death of George Floyd. I speak about my cat destroying my houseplants. Really anything that uh, people generally experience in daily life, I write about that. And then I also write about the, the Buddhist teaching, the spiritual teaching that we can learn from it. Let's see, I also have a YouTube channel, um, and that's just my name, uh, Alex Kakuyo, K-A-K-U-Y-O. If you search for that, I'll come up, and I post Dharma talks there if you prefer to watch videos. I, I try to keep it short. I know we all have short attention spans now, so generally five to ten minutes of a Dharma talk. That would be the easiest place if you want to uh, get some of the teachings I'm giving currently. And then if you'd like to check out my book, Perfectly Ordinary Buddhist Teachings for Everyday Life, it's available anywhere books are sold, but the easiest place would either be uh, Amazon or Goodreads if you'd like to find a copy. Fantastic. Sensei, I want you to leave us all with what you feel we need to know. We are in the manure of 2020, Mm -hmm. waiting for that fruit it's going to bear. We're all working on our stuff, ourselves, within ourselves, in order to do the work that we need to do to awaken. What other insights would you leave the listeners with today? Well, I would just like to let them know that in Buddhism, we have something called merit transference. And what that means is we don't just practice for ourselves. We practice for other people as well. Because we all, again, we live as individuals, but we also live as part of a a larger whole. So we're trees in the forest, you could say. So if people are struggling with their practice, if they're having difficulties, if they can't get to the cushion, I, I just want them to know that I am practicing enchanting and meditating on their behalf. Uh, people always ask, you know, Sensei Alex, what are you doing in this time? And I, I respond by saying, I'm praying for you. So I, I do two full liturgies, one in the morning, one in the evening. Uh, I light candles, I bow, I chant. And if they, for whatever reason, can't get to the cushion that day, I just want them to know that I went there for them. That's the most beautiful thing. That's the most beautiful thing. And we've talked about on the podcast, when we're in high vibration, we're lifting that vibration for other people too, which I think is exactly what you're talking about and is just so beautiful. And I think everybody listening, if they're in that space where they have the time and the freedom and the space to be able to do that, that they can help shift the world as well by creating a practice of doing that for the world as well. Right? Absolutely. So on Thursday, you are going to hear uh, this beautiful, beautiful uh, meditation that Sensei has. And we're going to talk a little bit about meditation that day. Please join us on Thursday. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I think this is one of my favorite podcasts that I've ever done. Favorite episodes. Oh, nice. I'm glad to hear it. (laughs) Yeah. So see you all on Thursday. Friends, if you'd like to hear from your angels and loved ones on the other side, book a one-on-one session via phone, FaceTime, or Zoom. You can also work with me one-on-one when you register to take the Angel Reiki School online to develop and use your own unique spiritual gifts. 
if you're just looking to be able to connect with your own personal angels. The Angel Communication online course will teach you how to hear, feel, and connect with your personal angels more clearly. Friends, if you get benefit from this podcast, please subscribe, rate us five stars, and ask a friend to listen. Don't forget to look in the show notes to see the winner of this month's free drawing. You're entered into the drawing when you write a five-star positive review and email it over to us so that we know how to contact you when you win. Now, if you have time, I want you to pause and do some energy work with me for a moment to lighten, clear, and reset your own energy. To start, I want you to take two deep breaths. Deep breath in. Deep breath out. Deep breath in. Deep breath out. Friends, as I walk you through this, I want you to use your imagination as an energy tool. Friends, your imagination isn't something that's not real. Your imagination is what every human being uses to create physical reality. How does a painter know what to paint? How does a sculptor know what to sculpt? How does a writer know what to write? They see it all within their mind, within the imagination, before it flows through them and is created within physical reality. Friends, I want you to start by seeing yourself surrounded by thousands of angels. These are all angels that work directly for God and they circle around you. They have this light, airy, warm, yummy presence to them. And my friends, they are simply pure love and they radiate their love from their being to yours. I want you to take a moment to just breathe deeply in and out as you see and feel the presence of all of these angels surrounding you, sending their love and light energy to you. Friends, next, I want you to see yourself surrounded by your loved ones on the other side. Your angels haven't gone anywhere. They're still right there, but now steps in your loved ones on the other side. Greet them. Welcome them. Take a moment within your imagination to give them the biggest hug and kiss.
Friends, as we do this healing work together, I want you to see that every single being that is surrounding you is just surrounding you because they are connected to God and they want to help you as a soul here on earth to lift your energy, to make it lighter, to take any heaviness out of your aura, chakras, and body. In order for them to help you with this, what I want you to do is voice to them. See yourself in your imagination telling your angels, your loved ones on the other side, God energy of course is there too. Tell them what you are afraid of. I want you to be specific and explain your fears to them now. Now, friends, I want you to see your loved ones and angels on the other side comforting you, holding you, wiping away your tears. I want you to see them telling you that you're going to be okay. Your family is going to be okay. I want you to see them showing you in their way from the other side that they are there helping you every step of the way and that they will never, ever leave your side. Friends, I want you to see or feel God energy, this pure, white, radiant light pouring down from above over you. And as you feel this pure love and light, this gentle waterfall just pouring over your head, filling your body, filling your auric field to the outside of you, filling every inch of your being around you. I want you to feel that as this light energy comes in, the highest vibration that is as it gently pours into your being, I want you to feel how all the heaviness within you just releases. With the snap of your finger, God takes every ounce of heavy, low vibrational energy within you. And with that snap of the finger, God turns all of it into the highest vibration, love, light, energy. Friends, I want you to imagine within your imagination, your DNA strand. Now, the way that spirit shows me the DNA and what it looks like is if you could imagine that double helix and that within that double helix are millions or billions of doors and windows. And those doors and windows open and close. And as they do, some serve your highest health and good, some do not. 
What I want you to do is say this prayer with me. My friends, this energy work does not have to take a lot of time. You're going to hear me say, use the snap of your fingers because within that snap of the fingers, your intention shifts the energy within your body. So you can say it, but please believe it. Know like you know like you know within your heart that you are changing the energy, the frequency within you to be pure, complete health. So say this little prayer with me now. God, please close all the doors and windows to my DNA that don't serve my highest health. With a snap of your fingers, see those doors and windows close. And God, please open all the doors and windows to my DNA that do serve my highest health. See those doors and windows open with a snap of your fingers. What I want you to do now is see yourself healthier than ever come September of this year. Daydream, visualize about what that health looks like and feels like to you within your body come September of this year. Take a moment to do this work right now and I'll come back to you with my voice in one minute. Friends, I want you to believe like you believe like you believe that you, your family, your friends, you are protected. You are safe. You are secure. Your angels are looking out for you. God is looking out for you. Your loved ones are looking out for you. See yourself as healthier than ever come September of this year. Now I want you to pray with me for a moment for everyone else. God Please protect our nurses, doctors, and all healthcare professionals around the world. God, may you give each of them strength and protect them. God, please also protect all people who work in grocery stores, food service, or delivery. God, may you give each of them the strength and protection that they need. For all people who are suffering from COVID-19 themselves, God, may you take care of them and heal all who are able to be healed. Surround them with your divine protection. Surround them with angels and help every cell within their body to become completely 100% healthy again. God, for every person who has lost a job or had their income reduced, please clearly show them the path to healing, safety, security, Whisper to them in their hearts the direction that you would have them go. God, for every child on this planet, 
please help them to receive the attention, love, nurturing, and care that they so desperately need. God, please surround them with angels and allow them to feel the divine presence of your love and warmth. For those filled with hatred, God, we ask you to transmute that hate within their hearts into love energy, and we ask you to open up their hearts to make shifts and positive changes to help them raise their vibration. And everyone who is helping with the COVID-19 effort or response in some way, God, please be with each person who needs your strength. Clearly guide them and protect them with whatever they need at this time. Friends, finally, I want you to visualize Thanksgiving of this year. I want you to take a moment of silence to experience this daydream within your mind. See every single family member and friend and loved one there at the dinner table. See them happy, healthy. Feel the gratitude of this Thanksgiving beyond any other Thanksgiving in the past. Gratitude for being all together. Gratitude for all being healthy. Gratitude for the lessons learned. Gratitude for the relationships that grew deeper and the love that is between you all. Again, my friends, see your spirit team on the other side telling you that you are going to be okay. See them helping you. My friends, God loves you. Your spirit team loves you. I love you. Open up your heart like French doors to all of the unexpected blessings that they're trying to bring into your life right now. May you go forth with your day feeling lighter and living in the high vibration that is God. Go forth in your day surrounded by angels and your spirit team on the other side protecting you. Allow yourself to just be. Allow yourself to live in the high vibrational frequency that is God and carry it with you throughout your day. Friends, I have to have a disclaimer at the end. This podcast is to educate, inspire, and entertain you on your personal journey towards health and happiness. It is not intended to replace care best provided by qualified professionals, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.